Gracious good morning to all of you. Thank you for the privilege of being with you this morning. Um, I'm going to try and grip this thing because uh, I'm not as bad as some of the young missionaries that I work with who almost are, it looks like they're cutting the lawn the way that they go back and forth on, in front of an altar, right? So I do tend to stay behind this, but from time to time I, I will roam and I, I shouldn't roam because then the mic goes off. So you guys are in charge. If I start to roam, do some of this, okay? And now that I think about it, it probably doesn't matter because sermon's only going to be a few minutes long. Um, and, it, and here's my story. <clears throat> uh, it's, what, 1045 now? So this time last week, I had just wrapped up preaching twice and doing the Bible class in Loveland, Colorado, north of Denver. I live in Denver. I uh, guest preached in Loveland last week. And I gripped the pulpit or the altar most of the time I was talking. I, I was dizzy all morning. Never had anything like that. A true story. And it got better. Uh, by second service, I was actually able to stand without holding on to the pulpit. But a couple of the longtime members in that congregation that I've known for many years are uh, OR nurses. And they said, you will go get tests. You turned 63 last week. Something ain't right. So I went to those medical centers nearby, got a quick test. My wife was along driving, and so we just thought it'd be a quick, e, a quick EKG, and then I'm out of there, right? They said, well, nothing on the EKG, but you can never tell with an EKG. You need to have a second one to make sure that it's factual. So we're going to send you over to the medical center, which turned into a uh, five-and-a-half-hour long stay. Another EKG, a CAT scan on my head, chest X-ray, blood tests, everything else, and it all came back clean, and the final determination was probably just a passing form of vertigo. Here's a pill, here's a prescription, you're in good health, on your way. Well, on my way was not back home, my, on my way was to Minot, North Dakota, driving, 898 miles away. Uh, that, that was my week. And so making stops in Williston and with our new congregation in Minot that's about to buy a Baptist church and remodel it into a Lutheran church. Spend two and a half days training a district mission board how to function better and then drive back home. And that turned into a nightmare because a flat tire in Beulah, North Dakota. Never heard of it. You should have. It's the 16th largest town in North Dakota. It's right on their sign, and they brag about that. 16th largest metro area in North Dakota. Flat tire turned into a nightmare because of Avis rental car. Confused on what they're going to do or not do for me. So I was three and a half hours in Beulah. That mattered because there's a storm moving in. Maybe you saw that in the news. That the northern part of western part of the U.S. got blasted by a storm. If we hadn't stopped in Beulah, we'd have made it home, but that three-and-a-half-hour delay ensured that we got caught in a snow squall north and east of Cheyenne, Wyoming. You'd never been there? There ain't nothing there. That's where we were. You ever been in a Rocky Mountain snow squall where there's lightning, and the snow is not snow, it's pellets? Snow, and that's what we were caught in, and so we holed up when I-80 got shut down. When we got near Cheyenne, we holed up for a night. And uh, so I got home a day later. There is a point to telling you all this. I swapped out suitcases, uh, got a few hours of sleep, got on the flight and came here yesterday. That turned in a little bit of a disaster because there was bad weather in Minneapolis where my connection was. So I got into Baltimore late last night. 
pretty late, found the hotel, got a few hours of sleep, found it close to Starbucks, came over here for Bible class. So I'm not ready. First time it's happened, 36 years of ministry. I'm not ready. I'm making this up. I thought the best we can do is I could explain the context of 1 Peter 3, why it's mattered. Mattered when Paul or Peter says, be prepared. The context in which that occurs, talk maybe about the few of the challenges there. Five minutes tops. Um, you got a potluck waiting for you. We'll call it good. Take an offering, go home, watch football after the potluck, okay? Short sermon. You would think that's ludicrous because you have professions. There are expectations of you in those professions. Stuff happens. Confusion arises. Hurdles are to be overcome. And yet you are expected to show up and to perform. And to perform adequately and above adequately. Or else they'll find somebody else. There are no excuses. You be prepared. You deal with the problems that arise. You deal with the traffic. You show up. You do what you're supposed to do in your profession, in your job, in your occupation, <coughs> even in a volunteer position. No excuses, right? So no matter what happened to me over the last seven days, doesn't matter. You invited me here. You expect something, and it's reasonable for you to expect that. That's more or less the line of thought that St. Peter has in First Peter chapter 3. Always be prepared. He, he doesn't say that there are no mitigating circumstances. He, he doesn't say there won't be hurdles or problems, but he simply says, as a Christian, one who has been washed in the blood of Christ and continues in this progress we call sanctification, always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. And there are no asterisks there. Sometimes we get hung up in this term gospel mandate or gospel imperative. Well, how can it be an imperative if it's a gospel? You can have that argument all day long, but, but the fact is that in a very mandatory, definitive way, God through Peter is saying to us, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Look at the first part again. If you're going to do that, what's it going to be about when you give your answer? But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. And you might say, well, that's a Sunday school point. I, I don't think it is. Well, we get into these opportunities that the Lord puts before us to, to present what we happen to believe to a friend or a relative or a co-worker. And, and often is not, it's not about Christ, is it? Interesting to see that in one of the clearest sections of the New Testament that expounds upon what we call personal witnessing, St. Peter, by inspiration, begins by saying, you set apart Christ as Lord. That's what you're going to talk about. case where this occurred happened on a flight. I don't even remember when anymore because I'm on airplanes a lot. And when you travel, if some of you have traveled for a living, you know how you lose track of time and place. And you end up in a parking lot with a clicker, wondering which rental car is yours and which room you belong in. You you understand that, right? So I don't remember the date. All I know, I, I was on a flight from Detroit to Utah so that I could get back to Denver. And I was on Delta, and I'm seated somewhere in the middle of the plane. And it was nighttime flight, relatively quiet, I anticipated. Usually it's the kids who make noise. There weren't many kids on the plane. I'm thinking I get a little nap here in this two-and-a-half-hour flight. Wrong. There was a guy. There was always a guy, right? There was a guy in back of me. 
got to look at him later. He's a bigger guy. He's an ostentatious guy. He's a mouthy guy. He's a happy guy. He wants the world to know his story. Everybody from 26B to 22B knew his story. I'm sitting right in front of him. It mattered because he's telling his story to a young lady. I got to look at her later on who looks remarkably like my youngest daughter. Spitting image. I would guess 28, 29 years old. And the guy felt the need to tell her his story. Now, I'm not picking on him because he's LDS, Mormon, but he's LDS. Makes sense. He's flying there. So what we learned about him, everybody who cared to listen to put on headphones, was he's LDS. Two of his kids are on mission right now. He has eight children, kind of low for a card-carrying Mormon. Um, he's a successful businessman in the uh, concrete aspect of the construction industry, and on and on it goes. And every once in a while, he'd come up for air and ask her if she had any thoughts on this. Because he spun all of that into talking about his religion and why it was important to be a Mormon. As little as she could get in a word, we find out, as she said, and nobody else could hear her but probably me, she's married to a pastor. She's raised a Christian. She went to Bible college herself. And more or less, she was being polite and responding to him occasionally when he would give her a chance, but uh, she did not want to go down the path of Jesus. Because this guy was loud, he was ostentatious, he was boorish, and she just judged that better that I not say anything beyond what I've already said about being a pastor's wife and being a Christian. Now, on one hand, you can understand, right? On the other hand, always be prepared and in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. I, I, I think perhaps what occurs, and maybe you can cut that young lady some slack, but when we've been in similar situations where there is an opportunity to get into apologetics, to defend the Christian faith, to say this is what we know to be true, and we hear from Peter, make it about Christ, we pause at that point because think of the ridiculousness of the Christian faith. I'm going to open my mouth and say to somebody, there is a historical entity who lived more or less 33 years on this planet, walked this earth, had the same issues as some of us had as far as being confronted by a sinful world, and yet he was never sinful, not, not for a moment. So he's perfect. On top of this, he's executed in a, in a heinous way, but more important than the execution physiologically is what occurs spiritually to him and has never occurred nor will ever occur to anybody else again. He literally suffers hell for a timeless moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that time, he experiences what was owed to me and, and to you. Hell itself. Not something to joke about, but hell itself is what he tasted. And by tasting it and enduring it, I'll never experience hell. And on top of that, he rises from the dead, goes to a place called heaven, and he preserves a place in heaven for all who trust that what he in fact has done applies to them. That's the ridiculousness of the Christian faith. It's illogical. Physiologically, it, you, you cannot prove it. We don't have video of it. We simply trust it. And what is it that we are trusting? What does Peter mean when he says, set apart Christ in your hearts? In a word, it's grace. Grace. That's what you're setting apart. And that becomes the central focus of your witness. 
It is unique to the Christian faith. No other spiritual approach to life and no other psychological approach to life. No other man-made religion or man-modified religion has it. Unconditional grace that simply because of Christ, the eternal God forgives each and every one of us. That's what it means to set apart Christ and to tell somebody about Christ. It's what makes your message distinctive. And it's why you don't have to be bashful. Because God himself was not bashful in putting before us this wonder of wonders, grace. Set apart Christ, closely related. Second part of verse 15, Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. Hope is the key word here. That, that we do have confidence and we do have sure hope. Like, again, Peter is not saying there will not be issues and hindrances as to why you may not want to speak up. He mentioned some of them in the words in front of you here on page 6, right? In verse 16, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. People may well have slandered you and will slander you when they know that you're a Christian. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. No good deed goes unpunished, my wife always says. You've experienced that. And it's quasi-biblical. Even if you should suffer for doing what's right, you're blessed. Somebody may throw your witness right back in your face. And verse 9, which is not printed in your worship folder, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit the blessing. You will, in fact, be insulted on occasion for being a Christian and for being so bold as to say, this is the Christian message. But in spite of that, you have sure hope. And that's a problem for us, that four-little word, hope. Because we do not understand it in the way in which Peter is using the term. When we speak of hope, we speak of something that is probably not going to happen. It's, it's unrealistic. But I kind of wish it would happen. That, that's hope. Um, sometimes I revert to athletics to explain this. In particular, athletics centered on Michigan, which is where I grow up. And in speaking of hope, I might hope that the Detroit Tigers will be better next year. They, they lost 114 games. But they're not going to be better. They're a bunch of 22-year-olds who barely know how to play the game. They're going to lose 114 games again next year. It's unrealistic hope. I might hope that the Detroit Lions will someday, I don't care if they win a Super Bowl, could they even get in the playoffs? It's been 55 years of mediocrity. I, I would just like one good year instead of we aspire to being 8-8. Eight and eight. That's good enough. So my hope for the Lions to ever be a meaningful football team is, is unrealistic. I might hope that Michigan State will beat Michigan because that's the way I roll. I cheer for the right college in Michigan, but they're not going to win in football. I might hope that Michigan State will beat Michigan in basketball. Oh wait, that's going to happen. 
That is going to happen. It happened three times last year. So I have a reasonable hope based on what has occurred in the past. Based on factual evidence, I can hope that somebody's going to win a basketball game. It is that sort of hope that Peter talks about here. Based on a historical fact. Peter isn't saying, always be ready to give the reason for the wish that you have. I wish that Jesus were true. I wish that heaven were real. He says, give reason for the sure hope that you have based on a historical Jesus in a definable place known as heaven where he dwells and you dwell also. So the essence of our witness, if you will, is to keep it on Christ, to say it's about grace, and that this is, in fact, sure hope. Now the hard part. Verse 15 again. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think it's the being prepared part where we get hung up. And I've got opinions on this, so hold on. I, I don't know your various professions. When I was here five years ago, and I was invited to your Super Bowl party, and we saw the most awful Super Bowl ever. And then a bunch of guys sitting in the basement watching football, right? And now the football game's lousy. What do guys do? Guys talk about either fishing, which I don't like, or they talk about their professions. And most of you, it seemed to me at the time, work for some entity where you couldn't talk about your profession. And nobody wanted to hear about my profession. So we sat there and we just ate and pretended like the football game, right? So I, I don't know what your professions are. But if your professional experience is like mine, you went through a certain amount of schooling that said you're prepared to have this job now, right? And then you actually got into the job and you learned stuff that you never learned in preparing for that job. Did you have such a moment? Most of you are saying yes. My moment occurred in 1987. I graduated in 1983, was asked to start a church with three families, northeast suburbs of Denver. And I did what I was trained to do. But I wasn't doing very well at it. My aha moment, where I got something in addition to my seminary education, came when I attended a workshop conducted by a man by the name of Harry Went. If you never heard of Harry Went, it's okay. He's Australian. He's connected to the Missouri Senate. He recently retired, finally. Harry Went went around the world trying to teach any audience that would listen, focus on adult education, not just Sunday school and Bible school. And it made sense. And the reason it made sense is that he pointed this out to me. It was in the Bible there all along. I just never saw it. He said, did you ever notice how Jesus taught adults and seemed to have played or at least blessed the children. And why is it that we do just the opposite? We focus on educating children and say, you know, we got Bible class if you want. Right? That became a defining moment for me. And a few gifted laymen who bought into it even more than I did in that little congregation. And we changed everything that we did in year four of our existence and said it's no longer about vacation Bible school and Sunday school. It's going to be about adult education. Starting with Bible information class, second and third level stuff, bringing in seminary professors if needed to teach really hard stuff. That's what we did as a congregation. And the outcome of that, 
We didn't have much by way of an evangelism program. It sold itself. I never had to ask for Sunday school teachers because people who'd been through the word now wanted to teach the word to little kids. Sunday school and Bible school sold itself. I bring this up because I've been out of a parish for 12 and a half years. I desperately miss what I got this morning sitting right over there. I miss being in an adult-level Bible class with mature Christian people. And I miss it for a very selfish reason. When I don't get to go to a Bible class, and most Sundays I don't get to go to a Bible class, I'm either traveling or preaching or doing a presentation like I'm going to do during your potluck about church psychological and sociological stuff. I don't get to go to a Bible class. And I miss it because that hinders me in witnessing. It really does. When I've not sat with mature Christian people like you in a Bible class where there's give and take, I am less prepared to be the Christian witness that Peter talks about. And my guess is that the same would be true of you as well. Be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. That involves making time, scheduling appropriately, desiring to grapple with God's people. It doesn't have to be Sunday morning necessarily. Maybe it's a small thing you do at a restaurant, 6 a.m. I used to have one of those Bible classes. I hated it. But boy, did I learn a lot listening to the six people who came to that class and were awake and could teach me. Or maybe it's in the evening in a home. Wherever that may occur and how it occurs, my encouragement to you is this is how you prepare to be a witness. In a few moments, we're going to stand and do the Apostles' Creed. That, that's a good thing. It doesn't necessarily equip you greatly to be a witness to the grace of Christ. We're going to gather an offering. We're going to sing a hymn. We're going to enjoy one another's fellowship in a potluck. These are all wonderful activities. They do not necessarily prepare you to be a Christian witness. This does. Gather around the Word of God to have it infiltrate you, to help you in your Christian maturity, and I think psychologically it enables you to be more willing to open your mouth when the opportunity presents itself. So it's grace, it's sure hope, it's being prepared, and here's a key word, always, always be prepared. If this was 1959 instead of 2019, and I was standing in front of you and saying, this is the one thing as your mission counselor that I would tell you to do, always would mean just be present and let everybody know that you're in the community because there are Lutherans moving in this direction and fringe Lutherans looking for a church. They're going to wander back after the wild oats of their youth because now they're married and have children. And what do I do? I don't know. I'll go back to church. Lutheran people would find a Lutheran church in 1959. If you flash ahead a little bit, if this were 1979, it would be to be in the right location, not just to be a Lutheran church, but to be in the right location. Because people in that generation began to say, I was raised a Presbyterian, but I'd be willing to try the Lutheran church because it's close. 
That didn't used to happen. If you were raised Catholic, you stayed Catholic. If you were Presbyterian, you stayed Presbyterian. If you were Lutheran, you stayed Lutheran. But starting in the 70s, you began to go to the place that was in the right location. Flash ahead of the 80s and early 90s. Location didn't matter anymore. It was everything about who had the hot pastor. Remember Jimmy Swagger, Jimmy Baker, Bill Hybels, Willow Creek, south side of Chicago, incredible influence on everything Protestant, including Lutherans in the United States for a 25-year period. Where was the hot pastor? And we learned the hard way that a personal cult doesn't make for good church. So we get into the late 90s and early aughts, 2000s, and now it's more about programs, especially baby boomers wanted this. Give me a program. I'm left-handed. I need a support group for me. I'm a Vikings fan. Oh, everybody else is a Packer fan. We've got to at least have a Vikings thing in our church, right? It was about programs. That's what attracted people. I would encourage you to say, not just for left-handed people, but, but to have Bible classes, have meaningful programs. Uh, that would have lasted up to about 2010 when, whether you want to call it spiritually or sociologically, the, the bottom dropped out in this culture. And there are books being written now on what happened starting in 2007, but certainly by 2010. You've noticed it, whether you realize it or not. You've noticed something's changed in the culture, right? That is quantifiable, how dramatically the culture has changed in the last 12 years as far as spiritual attitudes. And where are we today? We are right back to the conditions of 62 A.D. when St. Peter first penned these words as a gift from the Holy Spirit. We live in a largely hedonistic, pluralistic, confused, indifferent, and even antagonistic spiritual setting. And in that setting, God says, and God promises to bless these words. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have.